the book of Daniel. And uh, we are purposely taking our time here in Daniel chapter 9, especially in these last four verses of Daniel chapter 9. And today we're going to be focused on verse 26. And so uh, there's a lot of important things in these verses. And so we're just uh, pacing ourselves and going through this very systematically. So uh, let me remind you of what has happened in this chapter, chapter 9, up to this point. If you go back to the very beginning of the chapter, we find that Daniel is now serving the Babylonian Empire under Darius. Now, another name for Darius is Caesar the Great. Daniel had served Babylon for 66 years, and that time of service came to an end when the Medo-Persians conquered the city of Babylon in 539 B.C. And so this is the first year that the Medo-Persians have reigned, and that means Daniel receives the vision of this chapter. He receives this prophecy in about 539 B.C. BC. And we find that Daniel spent his time here studying his Bible, particularly studying the prophet Jeremiah. And as he studies what Jeremiah had written, he noticed that the 70 years of desolations that had been proclaimed for the city of Jerusalem are about to be over. They're about to be completed. And what does Daniel do when he understands that these 70 years of desolations are about to be accomplished? What does he do? He prepares. And he prepares for the end of this time by praying. And the primary focus of his prayer is confession of sin. And he's calling on the Lord to restore Jerusalem. And Daniel is told, when he started to pray, the very moment he started to pray, the Lord sent to him the angel Gabriel, who was going to share with Daniel God's plan for the nation of Israel. And that plan is what we see in verses 24 through 25. This is God's plan. Now, this is what we've seen so far in verse 24 and 25. In verse 24, we are given the length of the plan. 70 weeks or 77s. And that is talking about 490 years. So we're told here that this plan that God has for Israel is a 490 year plan. 490 year plan. Secondly, we know who gave the plan. This plan was determined by God. It says 70 weeks or 77s are determined, have been appointed, have been decided. They're determined by God. Thirdly, in verse 24, we know who this plan is about. It says, for your people, for Daniel's people, the Jews in your holy city, the city of Jerusalem. So this is what this 490-year plan is about. It's about the Jews and about the city of Jerusalem. The fourth thing we see in verse 24 is the purpose 
or purposes, plural, of the plan. There are six purposes for God's 490-year plan for the Jews and Jerusalem. Number one, to finish transgression. Two, to make an end of sins. Three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And six, to anoint the holy of holies. That's what we find in verse 24. As we move to verse 25, we see four more things. Four more things. First, we are told when the plan starts. We're told when the plan starts. The 490-year plan begins when the command is given to restore and build Jerusalem. That's when the plan starts. And we determined that's in 444 B.C. when Artaxerxes, speaking to Nehemiah, tells him to go rebuild Jerusalem. The second thing we see in verse 25 is when the first phase, the first phase of the plan ends. So we see in our text that the first phase ends with the phrase, until Messiah the Prince. Or another way we can translate that is until the anointed ruler. So this phrase, the anointed ruler, Messiah the Prince, is a phrase only used for the kings of Israel. So we're talking about a king of Israel here. And when this king comes, when this king comes, it marks the end of the first phase of God's 490-year plan for the Jews and the city of Jerusalem. And by the way, we last week identified that phrase in connection to the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Nisan 10, AD 33. So that's the second thing we see here in, in verse 25. The third thing is the amount of time, the amount of time between the beginning of the plan and the end of the first phrase. This amount of time is referred to as seven weeks and 62 weeks for a combined 69 weeks or 483 years. So there's going to be 483 years from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. 483 years. So the first phase of God's 490-year plan for the Jews and the city of Jerusalem, 483 years long, it begins with the command to build Jerusalem, and it ends with the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. The fourth thing we see in verse 25 is we know what is accomplished during the first phase of the plan. We know what's accomplished during this first phase of God's plan for the Jews in Jerusalem, we see that the city of Jerusalem will be totally rebuilt and finished. It's not just going to have some dwellings. It's not just going to have a partial wall. It's going to be totally rebuilt, cleaned up, and finished. And now we come to verse 26. And verse 26, we see the third major event that's going to take place. 
And this event comes after phase one of God's plan. It comes after phase one of God's plan. And there are two aspects of this event that we need to notice. It says the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And it says that the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary, that is the temple. Okay, we're going to talk about that today. But I also want you to notice that in verse 27, in verse 27, we're told what the second phase of God's plan is. The second phase of the 490 years. It's the last seven years of that time. And this is marked by two main events. First, it's marked by a seven-year covenant being made that will enable the Jewish people to make sacrifices and offerings again in the temple. It's also marked that in the middle of that seven-year covenant, the covenant's going to be broken, and the Jews will no longer be able to make sacrifices and offerings. So that's what's coming next. So verse 27 concludes God's 490-year plan for the Jews and the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so that's a little bit of an overview. Now we're going to go back and we're going to take a little bit more time to go through verse 26. Verse 26. And I've divided verse 26 into four parts. Four parts. The first part I've called the gap. The gap. The second part I've called the death of the Messiah and the postponement of the kingdom. The third part is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And the fourth part is the description of that destruction. So this is in your notes. This is, this is uh, all there in your uh, sermon notes. So we're going to go through each of those four parts here this morning. So first, let's take a look at the gap. The first phrase of verse 26, it says, And after the 62 weeks. And after the 62 weeks. So it mentions 62 weeks here. Why does it say 62 weeks? How come it doesn't say, and after 69 weeks? Or after the seven weeks and 62 weeks? Why does it just say, and after the 62 weeks? Well, the answer is quite simple. The 62 weeks is the last part of the 69 weeks. It's the last part of the 483 years that were given in verse 25. So the 62 weeks that are mentioned here in verse uh, 26 is really referring back to that entire first phase of God's 490 year plan for Jerusalem and the Jews. And this, it's kind of obvious. If you just stop, if you just slow down and you think about it, the first phase of this plan 483 years, is divided into two parts. Seven weeks, or 49 years, comes first, and then 62 weeks, or 434 years, comes second. If the 62 weeks is completed, then it's obvious that the first seven weeks have also been completed as well. And so he doesn't need to say the entire 69 weeks. He can just say after 
the 62 weeks. So that's why it says it that way. That's why it doesn't say 69 weeks or seven weeks of 62 weeks. He's just, he's just following what he's already laid out. And he says, after the 62 weeks, he wants to make sure we're paying attention to the chronological order of events as laid out in this passage. We can't just make these times mean whatever we want them to mean. We have to follow the sequence laid out in the Bible. And so notice you got these 62 weeks, but notice it says, and after, and after the 62 weeks. This indicates that the events written here in verse 26 do not happen within the first 69 weeks or 483 years. They don't happen then. They happen after the first 483 years. Are you following me there? So verse 26, the events described here happen after the first 69 weeks. So there is a gap of time. There's going to be a gap of time. Now look closely. Verse 26 begins after the 62 weeks. Okay, after the 62 weeks, after the first 483 years, after those entire 69 weeks. Now when's the last week come in? When does the last seven-year period begin? It doesn't begin until we get to verse 27. Do you see that? Verse 27 says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's seven years. So there is a gap of time between verse 25 and verse 27. So verse 26 records for us the break the gap of time that God has planned in this 490 years he's determined for the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. So this gap of time here represented by verse 26 is undetermined and undefined. In other words, we don't know how long this gap of time will be. We know, we know Verse 25 covers 483 years. We know verse 27 covers seven years. We know when you add verse 25 and verse 27 together, you get the 490 years mentioned in verse 24. But verse 26 is a gap, a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week of God's plan but we don't know how long that gap lasts. We don't know how much time is represented in this gap. And now I can tell you, I can tell you right now, it's at least 2,000 years, okay? It's at least 2,000 years, all right? It could be more than that, but it's at least 2,000 years because we know the 69 weeks have ended we know that the 69 weeks includes certain historical events that we know have happened, and they happened in 70 AD, and we know the 70th week hasn't happened yet. We know verse 27 hasn't happened yet. And so verse 26 is covering at least 2,000 years 
and maybe more. Now, it's important. It's important that we recognize this gap of time. It's super important that we recognize that there is a gap of time represented by verse 26. It doesn't, the the, uh, 490 years that God has determined for the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem do not run consecutively. By the way, the only approach to the Bible that can make sense of this gap is what we call dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, because it recognizes that God can have a plan for Israel and that God can have a plan for somebody else, in this case, the church. And God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church, while different and distinct from one another, complement each other. So what we have in verse 26 is actually what we refer to in church history as the church age. This is the church age in verse 26. So it's important for us to recognize that if we don't recognize, if we don't recognize a gap in time here as determined in verse 26, the 490 year plan that God has for Jerusalem and the Jewish people comes to an end between AD 37 and AD 40. Has God accomplished, has he completed his plan for the children of Israel? Has the purposes of verse 24 been completed? The answer is no. The answer is no. But if you take the 490 years as consecutive with no gap in here at all, then you have to end this passage in AD 37 to 40. And it just doesn't match up. It doesn't match up what we know from historical events, and we know that time very well. Nothing in verse 27 matches that time. So it's important to notice this gap here. Um, let's, Let's move on to point number two. Point number two, the death of the Messiah and the postponement of the kingdom, the postponement of the messianic kingdom. Notice the next phrase. It says, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, who is this Messiah? Who's the Messiah that is mentioned here? Well, if you take your finger and you put it in verse 26 on the word Messiah... And then you take your finger and you go up to verse 25, you'll find the word Messiah again, Messiah the Prince. This is referring to the same person. The Messiah the Prince in verse 25 is the Messiah in verse 26. In verse 25, we have determined that this is talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan, A.D. 33. And here it's talking about the Messiah, but it's talking about the Messiah being cut off. Now, what do you think that refers to? The Messiah being cut off. Well, that phrase cut off is used in the Bible in a number of different ways. It's, it's used to be killed. It's used to remove 
something from some place. It's used to uh, separate things. However, when this word cut off is used of a person, and it just says the person is cut off, it's always speaking of their death. It's always speaking of their execution. So for example, we're not going to look these up, but if you would look this phrase up, cut off, if you would look it up in the Old Testament, you're going to find that it's repeated over and over again in the books of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy. And what you find there is that this phrase is given as a penalty for breaking the law. And it's talking about a person being cut off from the people. What do you think that means? It talks about they're getting executed. They're killed. They're executed. And this is exactly what it means here when it says the Messiah is cut off. It's talking about the Messiah being executed. Being executed. Now, what is interesting here is that means Daniel and this prophecy is predicting the execution of the Messiah who is to come. He's predicting his execution. But this is not the first time that the Messiah's execution has been predicted. You remember in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 gives us a vivid description of the death of the Messiah. And Isaiah 53 comes several hundred years before Daniel chapter 9. We also find that in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, we have a prediction of the death of the Messiah. There the phrase is, then they will look on me whom they have pierced. And that's talking about a prediction of the death of the Messiah, that he would be pierced, he would be killed. And that comes 20 years after Daniel chapter 9. So Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26 and the prediction of the death of the Messiah is just one of the passages in a long list of passages in the Old Testament that predicts the death of the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53 predicted it well before Daniel. Zechariah 12 predicts it well after Daniel. Here's some other verses. Here's some other verses that also predict or at least allude to the death of the Messiah. Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. We're not going to look these up. You can go back and look, at, look them up later. Psalm 16, verse 10. Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verses 1, verse 1, verses 6 through 8, verses 6 through 8, and verse 11. So Psalm 22, verse 1, verses 6 through 8, and verse 11. Another passage is Isaiah 49, verse 7. Isaiah 49, verse 7, and finally Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. So here is just a few of the passages all in the Old Testament that predict the death of the coming Messiah. And we know, we know, all of these prophecies are confirmed and find their fulfillment 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was the coming Messiah and he was executed on Friday, April 3rd, AD 33. He was executed on the 14th of Nisan, AD 33. His triumphal entry was on the 10th. That's the day the lamb is chosen to be sacrificed. The 14th is when the lamb is sacrificed. So we find that this prophecy of the death of the Messiah is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And notice, it doesn't just say that the Messiah is cut off. Notice what it says in the following phrase. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. But not for himself. This is kind of a difficult expression. If we go with the translations in the King James and New King James, it, it seems like this is referring to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement of the Messiah, that he is cut off, he is executed, but he's not executed because of anything he has done. However, there's another way to take this. And this is represented by such translations as the New American Standard or the NIV, which say, and the Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing, and have nothing. In other words, he's, he should have received something, but he doesn't have anything. And there are sound arguments for both of these interpretations. If we take it the way the King James and New King James takes it, then it is speaking of the substitutionary atonement of the Messiah. And we know that the substitutionary atonement of the Messiah is true. We know both from the Old Testament predictions and the New Testament fulfillment that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he did not die for anything uh, related to him. He didn't die for his sins. He didn't do anything to deserve death. But we also know that if this expression is talking about and he has nothing, that it means when the Messiah is cut off, what rightly should have been his is not given to him right away. And what is the thing that the Messiah of Israel is supposed to inherit? The inheritance of the Messiah of Israel is the kingdom of Israel. The Messiah was to become the king of Israel. And so this passage is teaching us that when Jesus Christ is executed, the kingdom, the restored kingdom for Israel is being postponed. The kingdom was not given to him at that time. And so... Uh, these two interpretations are not mutually exclusive. It's not either or. It's actually, I believe, a both and. When Christ died as a substitutionary atonement for the sins of all men, when he died, he was not given the kingdom. When he died, he did not become the king. And that means we need to look to the future for some time when Christ will return and receive his kingdom.
And so this passage here, this little phrase here in the middle of Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks uh, predicts for us that the Messiah would be executed and that the Messiah would be executed but that his execution would not be because of anything that he did and his execution brings a gap brings an interruption into God's 490-year plan for the children of Israel and Jerusalem. Because that plan will be fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to earth to set up his kingdom, and he will be the king of the Jews. Let's go on to the next phrase here that we find. And this is the phrase... And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And of course, this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and what we call the second temple. Okay, the second temple. The first temple was built by who? Do you remember who the first temple was built by? King Solomon. King Solomon builds the first temple, and that first temple stands from about 966 or so all the way until 586. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes, and he destroys Jerusalem, and he destroys the temple. That's the first temple. But there's the, the temple is rebuilt again. And now we see that second temple is also destroyed. So I want to talk about this from three different perspectives. A prophetic perspective, a historical perspective, and then what I call holistic perspective. So here's the prophetic perspective. Now you're going to have to remember a little bit of what we've already studied in the book of Daniel. Okay, So I'm going to, I'm going to challenge your brain cells here a little bit. So uh, make, sure you're for, make sure your forgetter is turned off and your rememberer is turned on, all right? So here's a prophetic perspective. From Daniel's chapter eight, uh, 7 and 8, we know that the first three Gentile kingdoms are the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Medo-Persia, and the kingdom of Greece. D do you remember the visions of those chapters? Do you remember the vision, or chapter 7? In chapter 7, it's the vision of these different beasts, and these different beasts represent different kingdoms. In chapter 8, we're told, we're told that you have the Babylonian kingdom, then the Persian kingdom, Medo-Persia, and then the kingdom of Greece. Now, we also know from chapter 8 that the Grecian kingdom will produce a ruler who will be very cruel to the Jews, this person known to us as Antiochus Epiphanes. But Antiochus doesn't fit the description of the ruler here in chapter 9, verse 26, because Antiochus did not destroy the city of Jerusalem, nor did he destroy the temple. This means that the people that are mentioned here, the people of the prince who is to come, cannot be referring to the Greeks. 
And it cannot be referring to one of the rulers of Greece. The people of the prince who is to come must be referring to someone in the fourth Gentile empire. The fourth empire. You remember in chapter 2? In chapter 2, the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay. And then in chapter 7, the undescribable beast. That's the fourth Gentile empire. And according to chapter 7, it's not until this fourth Gentile empire has come that the Son of Man can be given his kingdom. So that's the prophetic perspective. Now let's look at the historical perspective. And this is going to go right back over some of the same information again. But historically speaking, the people of the prince who is to come can, cannot be the Babylonian empire or the Persian empire. How do we know that? How do we know that? Because we're talking about the people of the prince who is to come. Now, is that phrase past, present, or future? Who is to come? It's future, isn't it? It's future. Now, the Babylonian Empire was in the past. They don't exist anymore. The current Gentile Empire ruling in Daniel's day was the Medo-Persian Empire, so they are the present empire. And so that means we're talking about an empire into the future. And so it means it either has to be the empire of Greece or the empire of Rome. Well, we've already shown you that the empire of Greece doesn't work here. It can't be the third Gentile empire because it doesn't fit. That only leaves us the fourth Gentile empire, the empire of Rome. And here's what we know. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know that the Roman general Titus, beginning roughly in 66, AD 66, laid siege to Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And in AD 70, he destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Roman general Titus, who would later become Caesar. He's the one with a Roman army who destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. The Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586 BC, and Titus will do it again in AD 70. So think about this. Let's take, think about this with a holistic picture, and let's think about Jerusalem and the temple at this point in Daniel's prophecy. Daniel receives this prophecy in 539 B.C. 539 B.C. The temple in Jerusalem is in ruins. Okay? So as we begin this prophecy, the current state of Jerusalem and the temple is that it is in ruins. Why? Because the Babylonians destroyed it in 586 B.C. It's destroyed. It's in ruins. It's been totally wiped out, torn down. But we see here in verse 25 that the temple and the city are going to be rebuilt. You see that? From the command, it goes forth to rebuild the city, and then the street shall be built again in the wall. So the temple and the, the city of Jerusalem are going to be built again. 
So it's predicting the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. That's in verse 25. But when you get to verse 26, where, we at, where we're at, what happens to the city and the temple again? It's destroyed. The people of the prince have come to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's the second destruction of the city and the temple that we see. It's going to be wiped out. But then look at verse 27. In verse 27 it says, Then he shall come, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. That means when the covenant is made in verse 27, this covenant allows the Jewish people to once again make sacrifices and offerings. What do you have to have as a Jew to make sacrifices and offerings? You have to have a temple. The temple has to be built again. So in verse 26, the temple is destroyed, but by the time you get to verse 27, there has to be another temple. So sacrifices and offerings can be made. And then in the middle of that seven-year period, we see that the temple is shut down again. Make sense? This is exactly what... Daniel was telling us, he's telling us as we begin this prophecy, there is no temple, there is no city. But the city is going to be rebuilt. It's going to be totally finished. The temple is going to be there. But in the time between the 69th week and the 70th week, the time between A.D. 33 and the beginning of the covenant that's going to be made in verse 27. Between those two times, there's going to be a time when the temple is destroyed and the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. And that happened in 70 AD. Let me ask you, is there a temple in Jerusalem today? There is not. And there hasn't been one there since AD 70. And so sometime in the future, in Jerusalem, a temple will be built again and the Jews will offer sacrifices and offerings on it. But here we see in verse 26 that the temple that Jesus went to, the temple that Paul the apostle went to would be destroyed. Now, if we go to the end of verse 26 now, we have a, a description of the destruction. It says, the end of it shall be with a flood until the end, the war des till the end of the war, desolations are determined. So this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. When it says the end of it, the end of it, the it refers to Jerusalem and the temple. The end of it, the, the destruction of it shall be with a flood. Floods are something people around here know about, right? Hurricane Floyd, 1999, flood, the Tar River rose 22 feet above flood stage. People around here know something about a flood. Um, people around here do not know much about a flash 
flood, though. We're too flat. We're too flat to understand what a flash flood is. Where we lived at in West Virginia, when we had a flood, it, it, the rivers just didn't come out of their banks and go on forever. They couldn't do that because all the rivers are down in between two hills. Okay, the hills keep the rivers in. But what they do understand in West Virginia about floods is that when floods come, they come quick and they come powerfully. And so when you have a lot of rain in the hills of West Virginia and the water starts to rise and these creeks and streams start to fill up and then all of a sudden here comes the water and the water gains speed and it gains volume. And when the water goes through an area, it takes everything out. Houses, cars, trees, whatever's in the way, rocks, big rocks, it moves it. It takes it along with us and it just wipes everything clean. That's the description here. When it says, and the end shall be with a flood, it's giving us a picture of what the Roman conquest of Jerusalem and the temple will be like. It will be as if the flood waters came over and just wiped the city and the temple out. But we see also here in this verse, in the last phrase, that it says, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And here we see that this destruction and desolation of Jerusalem and the temple will continue. From AD 70 until just a few years ago, the Jews were scattered over the face of the earth, and Jerusalem was not a Jewish city. Do you realize that the Jews occupied their homeland? They occupied the promised land for 20 years before Jerusalem became a Jewish city. Do you realize that? The Jews come into the land in 1948. It is not until 1967 that the city of Jerusalem is unified under the control of Israel. But you also know what today? Today, Jerusalem is still a divided city. Yes, it's under the control of the government of the Israelis under the control of the state of Israel. But let me ask you a question. What sits on top of the Temple Mount? Not a temple, a mosque. Jerusalem today is still a divided city. The temple is still suffering desolations. The desolations that Jerusalem is suffering as described here in this verse continue from A.D. 70 and will continue on until verse 27, and there's a covenant made with many that will allow the Jews to once again sacrifice in their temple. One of the lessons I think we can learn from this passage is even though the temple and Jerusalem have been experiencing desolations, desolations predicted here in this verse, for 1,953 years. 
Even though they've been experiencing desolations all this time, God has not forgotten his chosen people and his city. This passage tells us God has a plan, a 490-year plan for the Jews and Jerusalem, that the first phase of this plan, the first 483 years, have been completed but that now we are in a gap of time waiting for the second phase of God's plan to start. This gap of time started with the death of the Messiah, the rejection of the Jews of their king, and the destruction of the temple. And this gap of time that we see in verse 26 continues up to today, and it will continue until the Antichrist is revealed and he makes a covenant with Israel for seven years. That seven years is the last seven years of God's 490-year plan for Jerusalem and the Jews. That seven years, in theological terms, is what we call the tribulation. The tribulation. God still has a plan for his people. And if God accomplished the first phase of his plan, and we see that it has been accomplished, we see the historical events that have been accomplished just like Daniel predicted, don't you think it's reasonable to conclude that the second phase of God's plan will also be accomplished just as it is recorded in our Bible? You can trust your Bible. When people say God's done with Israel, he's, God's fo totally focused on the church, and, and Israel is no longer has a place in God's plan, you can look at them and say, explain to me Daniel chapter 9. Explain Daniel chapter 9. Your Bible is true, and it can be trusted. God has a plan for Israel. He's accomplished part of it, but there's still part of it yet to happen. And those seven years that are still in the future, those seven years of verse 27 are necessary for God to accomplish the six purposes that he has listed in verse 24 for his 490-year plan for Israel. God has a plan. Got a plan for Israel. We in the church age know that God has a plan for us. Our part of God, God's plan fits in verse 26. Now, it's, it's not called the church age here. It's not called anything. It's a gap of time. This was where the church age fits, and this is where we are living. Daniel lived before God's plan started. Nehemiah and Esther lived when God's plan began. Jesus lived at the end of the first phase of God's plan. Jesus' death clearly indicated the first phase of God's plan was over. We live in the time between the first phase and the second phase of God's 490-year plan for Israel, which means we can still look forward to and look for how God is going to accomplish the rest of his plan for the Jews.
The Bible's great. This is amazing stuff. This is amazing stuff predicted all the way back in 539 B.C. Years and years before any of it happened, sometimes centuries before any of it happened, and certainly millennia before part of this passage it will ever be accomplished. The Bible's an awesome book, and we serve an awesome God. Why don't you just bow your heads and uh, let's have a word of prayer. After that, we'll have our fellowship time, and then uh, when the fellowship time is over, I'll just uh, call everybody back in, and we'll have uh, our Sunday school class right in here. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Uh, we're thankful that you revealed your plan to Daniel 